Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, I say you're with uh, Radiotherapy. It's myself, Panel Beater, and in the studio I have with me uh, Dr. Sharma. Good morning. Good morning to you. And via Skype, Neo. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to be uh, here virtually with you. <laughs> yeah, great to have you with us. Got a tra- great show coming up. You might be listening to us on uh, live on 102.7 FM On Demand. You might be catching us in, uh, and we're speaking, you to, speaking to you from history. Um, or um, you might be, or that's for the podcast, for On Demand, you might be on the app or the website, of course. Streaming by the website. Uh, what have we got coming up? We've got a um, a fabulous paediatrician up, don't we, Dr. Neo? We do. We've got Professor Fiona Russell um, who will be joining us to talk about uh, a number of different things, but mainly the re um, restarting of schools uh, since these, the recent introduction of uh, the, the guidelines for returning to school with children. Also, just how deadly is Delta with children? How uh, how worried should we be? You know, all these questions will be answered by Fiona, hopefully, later in the show. And hopefully we've got some uh, glass half full aspects to that, do we? Hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Sharma, you were about to say something? Well, I think we do. There's, there is a lot to be uh, positive about. But I think the th- thing that makes me nervous, like a lot of people, is the uncertainties. Yeah. And uh, people like Fiona Russell, have they've just been uh, so extraordinary in clarifying a lot of the science for us. So I'm really looking forward to having some of my questions answered too. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and Dr. Sharma, more community-minded this morning. Yes, well, uh, coinciding with uh, the recent AFL Grand Final, I saw the release of some new data uh, about the leading cause of hospitalisation for people who play Aussie rules. This is something I certainly know because I practice out of the community and you see people coming in all the time with injuries. And concerningly, now the leading cause of hospitalisation for people playing Aussie rules is concussion. And I think this is a really important topic to cover because I think about a million of us play Aussie rules. Half of this number are kids. So when we're talking about head injuries and that, it's pretty important stuff. Um, But even from a medical point of view, I think we're essentially in this phase where we are detecting a new disease. And I think even words like concussion, I think even the the, the definitions of that are going to change in the next few years. Oh, really? I think so. When you look at how new some of the data is, you go, there's no way we have wrapped our heads around this. Not even close, yeah. so it's going to be an interesting space to watch, but lots to talk about today about that too. The brain's pretty mysterious at the best of times, right? Uh, uh, totally. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's, and it's fascinating that what's going inside is obviously you know, quite a, a, a quite a challenge to figure out, but even just the statistics, with the more you look into this stuff about concussion, as we'll see later on, the, the, the more you realise that we're not even measuring the stuff that we okay. can measure, let alone the stuff that's actually going on inside. Excellent. Looking forward to that. I, I, I blame everything on my childhood concussion child sport. <laughs> Is that your go-to excuse? <laughs> well, yeah. It's a lie, but it's <laughs> I, I need an excuse of some sort. Um, and then right at the tail end, for a bit of whimsy, well, I guess it's whimsy, although it's got a dark side, is looking at some of the health implications of daylight savings. 
Do you know, you told us that you wanted to talk about this uh, uh, this Sunday and it only really clued, I only clued on to this about 11pm last night. I was like, why does Panel Beater want to talk about Daylight Savings? And then I go, I wonder if it's Daylight Savings anytime soon. <laughs> and then I'm just cursing myself at about midnight when I finally learned this. Going, Damn, I'm losing an hour. That was my whole WhatsApp nudge, uh, Dr. Neo. I remember that it's daylight savings, but I still can't figure out which way we go. <laughs> like even the, it's the morning of daylight savings, and I'm not sure if I've lost an hour or gained an hour. I was years old when I got a what's the, what's what's the word for when you learn a um, a heuristic? Yes, a heuristic, a um, that you you fall forward and you no you spring forward and fall back. So oh, although, although we say autumn in, in Australia, right, you spring forward. So c- coming out of spring into summer, you go. F- no, yeah, yeah, well, well, hang on. <laughs> that here is just. Might have to revisit that one. <laughs> oh God! I'm, I'm well, amazed you got go. here on time. Yeah, today. We got here on time. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Funny. We'll come back to that. But there, there are some. There are some. We're not. We're not going to be having the is daylight savings. Uh, Good or um, bad? You know, bad for the curtains or the cows type conversation. There's a couple of really curious um, uh, stats that come in on the back of um, some sleep research, basically, but uh, actually drawing to attention to what happens on both those two days of the year around the globe. So we'll come to that at the tail end of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, Head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. On this Sunday morning, we're very uh, lucky to be joined by Professor Fiona Russell, who is a paediatrician, infectious disease epidemiologist, and vaccinologist. She is the director of the Child and Adolescent Health PhD program through the University of Melbourne and an MCRI Asia Pacific Health Research Group leader. Welcome to Radiotherapy, Fiona. Good morning. So I just wanted to just first discuss um, what the current restrictions around children and schools are. Um, and just first off, like, are there any children at school right now? Yes. Look, the... Well, no, actually, because it's school holidays. Um, but um, but tomorrow um, will be the beginning of Term 4 uh, for all primary and secondary kids. And... Um, and so all along, throughout the whole, you know, pandemic period, any child um, who was a child of a essential worker or uh, a children who were vulnerable could go to school. But that was, you know, probably 3 4% or so of, of children by and large. But um, as from tomorrow, um, VCE students um, will be starting to go back for the year 12. Um, they'll be seeing their GAT exams on Tuesday. And then um, there'll be a slow return of other students over um, uh, the next, or at the end of the month. And Dr. Russell, uh, it's, uh, it's Dr. Sharma here. Um, obviously, with students going back, uh, vaccinations have already kind of kicked off. But can you give us a big snapshot of where we are at in Victoria in terms of vaccination of kids? Obviously, some ages can get vaccinated, some can't. A lot are getting vaccinated. Where are we at right now? Yeah, so the teenagers 12 and over, it's all vaccination is open for them and has been open for them for quite a while now. And so, fantastically, um, the 16 to 17 year olds, the last I saw for Victoria first dose was about 60 
over 60%, and uh, I think it was about 65% or so. And then for the um, 12 to 15s, it was about, it was over 40% as well. And they only just opened maybe about three weeks ago. So um, the 12 to 15 year olds won't be going back. Um, till the end of the month. And so um, with the announcement that the Pfizer dose um, is, um, they're reducing the interval between doses down to three weeks, we should see quite a good proportion of our teenagers um, fully vaccinated before going back. So there's been a really big uptake and a very fast uptake in that group, which has just been wonderful to see. Um, we don't have a vaccine yet for under 12-year-olds. Um, in this age group, um, this is the, the age group that is least affected by um, serious outcomes um, from COVID itself. Um, so it's the least... Um, the lowest uh, risk group of all, even though children can get infected and certainly can transmit the virus, but in terms of getting serious um, problems, um, this age group, the under 12s, the five, you know, the primary school age kids are the, the least, um, you know, to have a, a you know, a, a serious outcome. But that um, vaccine, well, for Pfizer anyway, um, they have, Pfizer has... Uh, has um, released some data um, that's not in the public domain, but they've released a press release to say that they're happy with um, that it's safe and um, uh, and that it produces the antibody response that you would like it to. Um, and so they're um, putting that forward to the FDA in the US for licensure in the US. And uh, But I think we'll be quite a way off yet for that vaccine, um, meaning probably early next year, I would think. So, Dr Russell, but you... Really, so, um, oh. Continue, please. Yeah, no, but really the most important thing is for teachers to get vaccinated. And we know that, you know, that's just been mandated actually in Victoria but for, and for early childhood workers. So that's the really critical thing because most transmission occurs from adults to, to children by and large and even in schools, even though, you know, it does occur between children as, as well, no doubt, but really critically. Um, and it's because the adults are the ones that have the more severe outcomes. And then if children do get infected at home, uh, sorry, at school, um, they can take it home and then affect everybody in the household, of course. So, you know, everybody who's uh, vaccine um, age eligible um, and the parents, it's critical that all the parents, as they're taking their kids to get vaccinated, they, they get the shot as well. So, Dr. Russell, I think you've mentioned, obviously, the risk of potentially kids taking... Uh, COVID home to their parents, despite the fact, like you've said, it often goes the other way around. So we know that one of the benefits is going to be maybe we'll reduce transmission a bit if we we give the vaccine to kids. But like you said, a lot of the severe outcomes of COVID don't tend to occur in kids because it's such an age bias. So what are the potential other benefits of children getting vaccinated? In the... um in the teenagers or the young kids? Well, actually, or both? Well, actually, actually both. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah, so absolutely. So um, for teenagers, um, um, they, you know, the US has found that um, getting vaccinated reduces... Um, well, children who are unvaccinated have 10 times the risk of a hospitalisation compared to adolescents that, ha- that have been vaccinated. So even though the risk overall is less, it still reduces a burden and that's a burden so we need to vaccinate. So there's direct benefits um, for for adolescents um, by and large. So, there, so yeah, there's no doubt that um, teenagers should be vaccinated for themselves, you know, to keep themselves healthy and for, you know, ending up in hospital even though it's, you know, much less the risk than an adult. And then for, for, for little kids, 
this is where the risk benefit really needs to be absolutely rock solid. And we have to have a vaccine that's absolutely safe in this group because because the risk because the um, the disease burden is so much less and by and large for the vast majority it's either asymptomatic or just a mild cough and cold type thing um, for a child, a primary school age child. Um, although, as I've said, extremely rarely, extremely rarely they can end up in hospital and have a poor outcome, but that's extremely rare. That the, the, the benefits of the vaccine um, really have to outweigh the risks. And so at the moment what the clinical trials have shown that... Um, have been done in um, over 2,000 children, which is really not enough to show safety. So it'll show that the sa- you know, safety in the terms of, you know, having a fever and a sore arm and, and things like that, which is important because it needs to be well tolerated. But what we really need to know is whether um, there's no rare side effects in this age group, because if there's rare side effects in this age group, then you really have to weigh up then the risks and benefits. You know, are we making otherwise healthy children more sick from getting the vaccine. And so that's why it's really critical to have a very large sample size of children being tested because very rare side effects can only be tested in studies that are very large. And so um, the FDA actually asked Pfizer to increase their um, participant numbers um, a number of months ago. They've released this um, initial tranche of data, um, but I would imagine the FDA will be saying, look, you need to give us more data safety data before we license the vaccine because of this the very nature that there has to be absolutely rock solid the safety of the vaccine so I, I i mean we won't hear i mean usually it takes a number of weeks to hear from the fda or even a month or so so but i would imagine that's what they will be asking and just to be clear uh for, for our listeners when you're talking about this search for more data we're talking about kids under 12 yes Yes, so we're talking about, yes, so the data that they released was the primary school age, so the 5 to 11-year-old. So the teenage data is already licensed, way to go, everyone's getting vaccinated. So it's just what I'm talking about now is the 5 to 11-year-olds that have, that is, that has just been, the data's been released and gone to Pfizer. And that's such an important point, Professor Russell, with a lot of the the commentary about vaccines being that they've been rushed through or that there's not enough safety data, I think it'll be, you said, a lot of parents' uh, hearts at ease knowing that there are quite a number of people who are looking very carefully at the safety data and making sure that it is the right decision for these younger children to be vaccinated. I wouldn't mind just taking a step back and looking at the impact of closures our school closures on children. So, like, we know that lots of the key aspects to a healthy childhood development are basically what you expect them to be, you know, safe and happy home, good nutritious food, education and socialisation. But with school closures, we lose some of these key aspects. And I just wanted to get your point of view on what the long-term impacts of a generation of children not being able to attend school for 18 months. You know, do we know, do we have any idea what the impacts uh, will be on, or how this will potentially change their development? No, no, we don't know. Um, but, um, and so we certainly need to do the research to follow this up. But um, but by and large, I mean, both kids will are resilient. Um, you know, many of them will be. Many of them will grow. They'll be stronger. They'll be better off it, better for it, um, and will go on to have, you know, very healthy, productive lives. However, there is a, there will be a proportion um, of children, which we don't know the percentage 
what that would be, but um, may not uh, be in that category. And we've certainly known that um, the in Victoria, with the prolonged um, lockdowns that we've had in school closures, that um, that children um, have had some of the worst mental health outcomes and and we've seen that in emergency departments where distressed families are turning up and this is, a, you know, there's been a very big increase in serious mental illness um, with things such as suicide ideation and uh, and eating disorders with, you know, having, you know, with teenage girls in particular ending up in intensive care. So the actual burden of mental illness from lockdowns is far higher and serious illness is far higher than COVID, for example, in this age group. So it's absolutely critical children sort of get back to school. They need, as we know, we need... Uh, schools are a lot more than just, you know, teaching our children how to read and write and add up. You know, they're the social fabric of their lives. They're part of their community. They're part of their village. I mean, you know, we know in, you know, there needs to be a village to raise a child and, and schools are ex- extremely essential part of that and for some children it's the only village that they've got particularly the most vulnerable ones and and the marginalized kids who you know who need extra support to uh you know to stay on the computer or to have a computer to have internet to be motivated you know have a parent sit next to them i mean that's you know there's a lot of inequity um that occurs so that social disadvantage will only be widened um with school closures so and then there's the mental health um, recovery um, and anxiety. I mean, some kids never actually got back to school in between lockdowns because of social anxiety. So there's a proportion of kids and um, that it's just that anxiety and, and depression, the mental health impact is, is just huge on our generation of, of, of children and, and certainly the parents too. I mean, the parents have had a really tough time and, and that then reflects in the children's mental health as well. Um, so we really don't know what the long-term thing will be. We certainly know the short-term that the mental health system is broken and, and can't meet up with the demand um, for services because of the issue. Um, and so... Um, but, you know, we don't know how many will bounce back and, and be absolutely fine or those that will go on to have lifelong problems, which we hope will just be, you know, under 20% or 15% or whatever it is. But still, that is uh, that is a huge problem. We will need a big recovery program, not only for the children, but I think for all of us. Professor Russell, you were just talking about uh, and underlining a really important point that schools are much more than just teaching and learning. I wonder if maybe you could point out a couple of key questions that parents might be best equipped with if they were to put them to um, the school, you know, in in a sense, recognising that not all schools have the same resources in terms of being able to manage a return to school, offer students um, the sort of support they need. What kind of things could parents be asking of the school to re- have themselves reassured that the school environment's good for their kids? Yes, well, we know that now um, that the teachers will be vaccinated. So by the end of, I think it's November, all the teachers and early childhood all early child care workers have to be vaccinated. So I think that's a given. So that's so parents won't need to ask that question and probably wouldn't get an answer either But um, because of privacy issues. But I think they can be reassured that the, the adults in the school will be vaccinated. And that's the absolutely number one thing. And, and the second thing they need to ask themselves, is their household protected? So have you got everybody in your household who's age eligible and all the people around your child as much can you encourage all of them to get vaccinated as well so they're the two things i would think out of school things which they have got some degree of control over and then in the school is is the ventilation 
um, side of things. And um, the Victorian government, anyway, has uh, has put in, you know, has funded fifty one thousand air filters. So I know. Um, in the, uh, they have been prioritised for the LGAs where there's the highest um, schools and the LGAs with the highest um, transmission numbers. I know that because my husband teaches in a school in one of those areas and they said their filter's getting put in in the next two weeks. So that's fantastic. So that should be in also by, you know, we hope by the end of October, particularly in the high transmission areas. In the high risk areas are absolutely critical. And then for the other schools that may not be getting their filters or immediately or some time later, the main thing is to, you know, open the windows up or, you know, get an engineer in, maximise the ventilation. I'm, an, I'm no engineering expert, but I've spoken to the engineers and they say to make sure the filter's dialled up to max and that you're not recirculating the same old air, that you're using fresh air coming in. And then critically, it's mask wearing. The other thing is masks. So it's mandatory, has always been for a very long time, a year probably now, that any child over 12 has to wear a mask, so that's going to continue. And then it's strongly recommended um, for primary school kids. Now, it's not mandated for primary school because we know there's, you know, some challenges for some kids in doing that, and it'll be very hard for teachers to have to wrangle, you know, with some of the, you know, the hyperactive kids or, you know, kids that, you know, just will not wear a mask. And so, um, but they probably will with peer pressure anyway. So I think the majority of kids anyway in primary school end up wearing a mask. So that, that'll be... Um, you know that 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 those those things are really the key things, and then the other things are, um, you know, the staggering of of start and stop times and recess times and um, hand washing and uh, teaching, making sure that well, the kids should know this by now, but you know, the hand washing and uh, and um, and things like that. So, and parents won't be allowed to go on the school. No, no adult unless they're teaching or you know employed by the school will be allowed to go on there. So. Um, yeah, they'd they be the, you know, they're the, really the main things um, for, for this year that are, are really, you know, to help reduce the risk. And, but people need to know that there's no such thing as zero risk. There will be infections. There will be an increase in infections. There will be some outbreaks. Uh, this will happen for sure. Um, but um, but there's contact tracing in place to, to and there's, there's, there's um, work being undertaken to pilot the rapid antigen testing as well in certain areas. Um, so that, that those, um, you know, there might be some changes to the contact tracing that will happen in schools um, in Term 4, which will need, which there will need to be. Um, but um, I think they're, they're probably the main things. And, and when, and when um, you know, when schools do go back, and, and it's also in a staggered way, so it's not everybody going back on the same day. It's a very, very conservative, uh, which is good, you know, a very slow return. So... Um, the sevens to year seven to year tens, for example, are just going back two or three days a week, and 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 the government obviously is monitoring the situation um, to have a look at numbers and hospitalisations in particular to make sure, you know, overall, depending what's happening in the community. So whatever whatever's happening in the community will spill over into the school. So and then when schools open, you know, mobility patterns change. So not only do the children go to school and mingle, but the parents also go out and catch public transport or, or whatever they do, you know, to get their kids to school. Some mobility patterns also change in the parents. And so those two things combined, um, there may there will probably be an increase in cases. But we also know that, you know, our vaccination rates are going up amazingly as well. So we hope we can sort of just back our way out of this as well. Thank you so much, Professor Russell. That's such a uh, refreshing uh 
point of view to hear on kids in schools. You know, it seems like we've moved from the the zero COVID uh, rhetoric that's been been toted for the past eighteen months to a very practical, very very realistic. You know, infections will happen. There are there's a risk of children returning to school, but here is the data. We know it's largely safe. We know that children will be able to uh, return to a somewhat real, realistically normal life, and uh, we're doing these steps to to help them uh, achieve those goals. It's also nice to hear that there's somewhat of a checklist for our listeners to go to their own schools and make sure that they are actually safe. You know, are filters installed? Are windows open? Is everyone vaccinated? Um, and are all these measures being undertaken to keep my child safe? Thank you very much for your help, Professor Russell, with uh, clarifying those issues. Um, you've been on Triple R Radiotherapy. You're welcome. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've just ha- had some really enlightening views from Professor Fiona Russell talking about COVID in kids and uh, a not-so-tenuous link that provides to the thing we next want to discuss, which is uh, concussion in Aussie rules football, or probably even more broadly in just all kind of community sports. You'll see what the link to kids is in a second. But this is coming off the back of, obviously, we've had the grand final just recently. Uh, Well, I was going to say we've had the grand final in Melbourne. We most certainly have not had it in Melbourne, of course. Uh, We had it in spirit. Um, But uh, around the same time, and I think this was missed in some of the media cycle, was some newly released data that shows that now... The, the top cause for hospitalisation for people who play Aussie rules football, uh, actually since 2013, is concussion, which is pretty stark because the last time I was practising uh, you know, in, a, in a community where I knew that I would be receiving patients who were uh, playing a lot of football, this is actually back in Horsham, I don't think that was the case for me at all. So this is actually came as quite a surprise. This is the top reason. And uh, I guess the way that this links in with uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, with, with Fiona Russell in terms of impacts on, on children is that two-thirds of all the concussion in Aussie rules uh, uh, f- football is for people between the ages of 10 and 19. This is predominantly affecting kids. And I think it's really important to talk uh, – a topic to talk about concussion because I think it's a public health issue. It, uh, roughly one million of us – play Aussie rules football and uh, when you factor in other sports such as rugby as well that number just balloons to, you know even much higher and as as we were saying earlier a huge proportion of the people playing this sport are children and we're talking about things like concussion and its effects on the developing brain um, you can see how incredibly high stakes it is now to give you an idea uh, of the problem uh, so this was uh, analysis that looked at roughly 5,000 injuries that required hospitalisation. And to, to give you an idea, 5% of the time it was something to do with a foot or ankle, 10% of the time to do with the knees and hands and fingers. 
And over the last, uh, we can say roughly eight to nine years, we've seen a steady increase uh, in the percentage of hospitalizations that are due to concussion, now making up about 12.7%. And it's not just happening in elite sport at the AFL level, we are seeing it at a community level as well. So before we go on, and there's so many different views that I'm sure we can factor in from Dr. Neo and panel leader, it's probably important to define what we're talking about when we say concussion. So it's a type of traumatic brain injury, right? When you, you, People think of the brain as being something that's perfectly kind of encased in the skull. It's actually not. It's kind of like a, a, like a cube of, je- of jelly that's inside like a plastic kind of container. And when the brain suddenly stops, it shakes around. And that's what creates the trauma. So, quick question there. So, um, so we, the, so the brain itself, the the, the matter, the grey matter, doesn't uh, fit snug in the skull. No, in fact, I reckon the the best way to describe it is that it sloshes around. Okay. So the skull is a hard bone. There's uh, a fluid inside it, and uh, that surrounds the brain. So quite literally, the brain will move and slide and uh, and respond to the momentum is that is that um jelly <laughs> um is offering uh what what's the role of that like why isn't the brain snug in the skull is is that uh is the stuff that surrounds the brain um and is between it and the skull does it uh, offer some compression yeah well is that part of its job so i guess firstly for the brain itself you you kind of do want it to be a little bit compressible uh just so it can absorb the impact and uh, the reason why it's not snug is because like we said there was there's a bit of fluid and other structures around it again when there's a bit of impact happening to the head what you'd hope is that it's distributed right. around uh-huh. uh, and as little of it is is actually suffered by the actual the really precious brain tissue uh, itself so but as a consequence what happens is that you essentially get uh, if you think of it intuitively, kind of like a whiplash-type injury that happens inside the brain. So when your head suddenly stops because, I don't know, if I slip and hit the table, um, the, the brain will move forward to collide against the skull, then go backwards to hit the backside of the skull. So these are what we call coup and contra-coup injuries, which are the two main mechanisms by which this brain injury occurs. But then there's the invisible stuff. Sorry, just before you go there, it occurs to me because you'd used an age group of 10 to 19. Hmm. So um, a 10-year-old and a 19, just in physical development, does that is, – is there any dif- distinction to be made on that front between, say, a 10-year-old and a 19-year-old? Well, it's, it's really just a continuum, okay. right? So the brain will just continue to grow and evolve in terms of the connections that are being made by, by nerve cells and neurons. And actually that – Process continues up until twenty five. Okay, uh, yeah. in males, uh, so uh, so that brain will continue to to kind of mold and evolve and only really have its kind of finality, so to speak, at about that kind of age twenty five. So and and I guess the structures that are really changing around between ten and nineteen, the stuff you're really talking about, is. The, the stuff that we can very visibly see uh, in teenagers is our emotional regulation, is our, of course, intelligence and our decision-making and risk tolerance. So this is the stuff that really evolves between that 10 to 19-year year, uh, year kind of age group, which is why, you know, this is not something we potentially want to be disrupted by, by head injuries because if you change the course of that yeah. development, yeah. you're kind of changing the trajectory of someone's life. Yeah. Um, when uh, so an injury occurs on the sporting field, 
Um, in a sense, it occurs to me, you know, if I was if I was looking at my niece and nephew, I don't have kids myself, but I was looking at my niece and nephew, and and I saw them go down with a fall after a collision with somebody on the field. Um, th- of course, that would worry me instantly because it, visually you'd see actually the consequence of the impact. It occurs to me that maybe a bigger worry is say an incident that happens on the field and there's a delay in the in the consequence of that impact um is there a difference between what we know about um you know a concussion immediately like two heads collide one goes down concussed compared to somebody who bumps their head on the field and then on the saturday and then on the tuesday they start getting headaches or they're not sleeping or whatever is there a distinction there i mean they uh it can just go separate, several different ways, and it's not easy to say that one is worse than the other. Uh, I will say that this, though. Uh, if, if there is a delay in the onset of severe symptoms, so, for example, if, if you briefly lose consciousness right after you have a head injury, that's bad. It's way worse if you don't have that and then you get that loss of conscious, consciousness occurring 24 or 48 hours later because then the the list uh, of things that I'm considering as a doctor are not just the, the kind of bruising of the brain that occurs when the head's collided but potentially bleeding into the brain that often can occur with a 24, 48-hour delay. So that's the stuff we really start to worry about. See, from my point of view, I think that concussion has ultimately a publicity issue. I, I know, hear me out, if... Uh, if you went to a parent and said they've got your child has a concussion, I think the issue with that is that often parents are like, oh, okay, it's a concussion. I've heard of that before. Uh, it seems like it can't be that bad. You know, my neighbor's kid got it. My brother's kid got it. You know, everyone kind of gets concussions. It's a normal part of childhood life. But if you said to a parent, your child has a mild traumatic brain injury, I think that parents would stop and think, oh, that's, that sounds awful. That I th- sounds bad. I think, you're, I think you're bang on, uh, and I think that's really how it should be described. And I think right at the uh, at the opening when we were chatting, uh, panel beta, I, I mentioned kind of offhandedly that I reckon a lot of these words are going to change. I reckon this might be the first thing we probably should change. You're quite right. I think concussion, that word, has kind of lost its power. And we talk about a brain injury, I guess, the, the, the and when I've described it to parents in this way, the first thing they ask me is, is this going to be permanent? And this is now the beginning of the, the real conversation we need to have because, like I say, Dr. Neo, I think people hear concussion and go, oh, well, I've had that before. My mate's had that before and everything is fine. Uh, but really the, the, the key question is, is there a permanency to the effects of concussions? And the, the research, this is part of what makes it so difficult, is that research is so new, but it's clearly showing that there is a potential for ongoing kind of cumulative damage that can build up over time. Um, and I guess the really concerning thing is that you may not even need to have a full-blown concussion to, to sustain this some kind of level of permanent damage, that even milder head trauma uh, uh, could potentially add up over years and years and cause some uh, damage that, that you retain forever. And concussion seems to be one of those ones where it's a little bit vague in in its diagnosis. You know, It's not something that we can ultimately say, yes, you've definitely had a concussion every single time a child has sustained a concussion. You know, there's tools that we use to diagnose concussions and or mild traumatic brain injuries, uh, and but they're not perfect. Um, one of the best ways of doing it is, you know, you could scan it, like do a CT scan or a, uh, on a child, but that brings in its own issues. Say a 10-year-old comes in playing footy and he gets a concussion every two weeks. Do you put him through a CT scan every two weeks to... Um, 
to see if he's got any kind of consequences of this head injury or because say he has 50 scans over his childhood. That's 50 doses of this CT brain uh, radiation that this child may or may not have needed. And also, uh, I think the, the converse is that, let's say, if a child has a CT scan and that's clear, uh, does that mean everything's fine? And the, the answer we know is clearly not because there is, you know, kind of chemical changes occurring in the brain because of this trauma that that may not show up. And I think this is exactly what makes this problem so, you know, kind of fascinating and also complicated is that you know, there's how do you go about collecting this information? Uh, like you're saying, Dr. Neo, collecting that information with scans has its own risks. But it's not like if if the scan is fine, that means there's no risk at all. Mm. And I think which is why we're going to see this space continually evolve over the next next few decades until we actually know. And I wonder if we'll look back, Panel Vita, in, in horror 30 years from now, 40 <laughs> years from now, and you know, our you know, posterity will be asking us, how did you let kids do this? How did you let a developing brain just have a few concussions a year and go on? Oh, look, there's no shortage of um, 2020 hindsight on all manner of things, isn't it? And we've got to be careful not to, you know, um, apportion guilt to people who didn't know better at the time um, and that kind of thing. I like how you're indemnifying us. Uh, <laughs> or, or, or for, well, for yeah, is it indemnification? Perhaps it is. But I'm also trying to, you know... I don't want to do the back in my day, but I'm going to do the sure. back in my Here day. Here we go. <laughs> so I went to an all boys school, and it was rough. I mean, it was it was a good school and all of that. I'm not I wasn't um, I'm not talking about violent type school, but it was rough. It was all physical contact, um, sports, everything. Um, are we saying that the stats that are starting to be uncovered now um, actually do reflect? historical times, whether that be 20, 30, 40, 50, even 100 years ago, um, or is there something about the way that sport is being played and organised now, um, along with the emerging science, um, that these stats are being unfa- are being found? Yeah, so when they asked experts to, to comment on this data, they said almost certainly a huge part of this rise, so to speak, uh, is only happening because of increased awareness. So that's actually, I think, if anything, this rise is almost certainly a good thing right. uh, that we're seeing it happen. But then you do wonder with the, uh, the level of professionalism that's occurring in sport and you know, people potentially kind of playing it more regularly and because there's financial incentives to kind of do so. And also the really structured way now that kids will play mm. and train. You wonder if that's all kind of factoring in. But it's really difficult to, to assess the damage from what happened 40, 50 years ago because the the, the gold standard research when it comes to, to concussion re- uh, research is literally looking at the brain. And you literally have things called brain banks where people will donate their brains. It'll be examined by a pathologist to see if there's damage or not. But there's a huge degree of bias that goes on there because you can imagine who would want to donate their brains except for the people who probably had some suspicion that they've had some damage from the sport in the first place. Mm. So, so so much of the work is to actually say, well, how big is the problem? So the whole back in my day, you know, we used to, you know, things are pretty rough and we turned out okay – that's a valid argument. We need to we, – we have to counterbalance these things, right? Like the answer is not no sport. The no. answer is let's find out the answers and then decide. I, the one thing that's come out in recent times that's kind of scared me off uh, my – or scared me the fact that I had multiple concussions going to my old boys' school uh, is that chronic traumatic encephalopathy is becoming a – One more time? Chronic <laughs> Traumatic encephalopathy is becoming a recognized phenomenon, which is basically 
in very like layman's terms, you get dementia from having multiple traumatic brain injuries. And you can start to see these real tangible effects of multiple, multiple injuries um, cumulative throughout your life. And you can actually see it in a lot of the older boxes. You look at them and you're like, oh, there's something a little bit off about them. That's the dozens and dozens and dozens of head injuries that they've had. And um, I don't know if you're starting to, like in GP land, if this is starting to become a more recognized phenomenon or if it's more of a research-based phenomenon, Dr. Well, well, actually, well, we're certainly seeing patients bring it up all the time. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, as it's known, there's an in- incredible amount of awareness occurring now in all sorts of you know, mixed martial arts and, and AFL. We hear about it all the time. Again, so much research to be done to, to see, as we say, how big that denominator is and what people's risk of, of it developing is. And then the question is, well, how do we go about regulating these things, especially you know, for kids' sports while their brains are developing. Um, so we can get them through the safe period. Hopefully by that point we have the research after people turn 25 and can consent and then decide what risks they want to take and not take. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr. Sharma and Neo, a couple of things caught my eye about some stats regarding daylight savings just to close out the show. Um, I was, I've was i been reading a bit about sleep lately, so that's how I came to this. I wasn't in, actually on the hunt for daylight savings stuff. But it turns out a lot of sleep uh, researchers are interested to use daylight savings as a way to understand you know, matters like um, uh, sleep deprivation or changes in sleep patterns. And obviously twice a year, um, as Matthew Walker describes it in his book, uh, Why We Sleep, he calls it um, a global experiment that happens twice a year. So the, in terms of population levels, when when scientists and researchers are looking for big data, getting as many people as possible experiencing the same thing at the same time is a big deal, right? So these stats kind of matter. Check out these. Each year when the, um, when, when the switch happens, and at the moment, these are US stats. So, um, excuse me, I couldn't find the Australian stats. Um, but we can we can make some confident assumptions of the similarities. Um, that uh, on the uh, on the switch uh, at spring, so our autumn, the um, the one going into um, um, uh, winter, there's a twenty four percent twenty four percent spike in heart attack visits to hospitals. 24% on a single day spike, right? That's staggering. Right? And at the opposite end, right, when we turn back the clocks, like, like we've just done, there's a heart, heart attack visits drop 21%. Hang on. So just to be clear, because yeah. I have to be honest here, the forwards and backs always confuse me. Yeah. So the idea being... That what so the, so we've the, just the, gone back. Yeah, so we've gone back. We're yep. we're all underslept. Yep, slightly. Yep. That's when we get the the rise in heart attacks. Is that what we, or, or the the presentations for? Well, the stats are telling us that there's a drop of twenty one percent. Oh no, sorry, we get the, the drop when it's the other way around. Yeah, it would make sense. Yeah, <laughs> we've got to get our fall and your uh, forward and back uh, sorted first. Yeah, we've though, got we? to get sort yeah. that heuristic. Yeah. Out. yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. So 
firstly, that's a huge number. And any time a number is that big, you know, I think we always kind of have to be uh, at least a little bit sceptical about the research. Sure. But that said, it makes a lot of intuitive sense, yeah. doesn't it? I think yeah. that's why it all kind of rings true with us. Um, in fact, as I was telling you earlier, I clued on so late that, oh, the reason panel leader wants to talk about daylight savings is I think today might be daylight savings. <laughs> and my first concern when I realised this at about midnight last night was, gee, I wonder, I'll, I hope I'll be safe to drive. I better get to bed early. Um, because it would not be surprising for me at all to, if I was underslept, to, you know, to be driving poorer, and you know, we know how how that goes in terms of health risks. So, so I guess mm. it's not altogether shocking. But no. it is a massive public health issue. If it's true, then my goodness, what are we doing to a nation for that day? Neo, you're about to. Oh, I I thought it was interesting because it's like if you look at the actual data, it's we're losing an hour. And there's this rise in, rise in heart attacks. That means there's actually 23 hours in the day, which is one less hour for people to be presenting with heart attacks. So it's still we're still getting this rise with less time in the day. I just thought that little bit was interesting. But I do agree with Dr. Charmer. You know, I, you know, working night shifts, um, you'll go for some, like, if I don't sleep during the day on the first night shift, I'll be up for 24 hours. And then I'll have to drive home after that. And I honestly quite feel like I'm, would be better driving home drunk. Um, well, you've you've just uh, hit another aspect of some of the interpretation that's going on around these stats. So there's the heart attack stat, which is, you know, kind of confronting in and of itself. But perhaps more interesting is the consequences of sleep deprivation overall and people pointing, and these researchers, these same researchers, pointing to the consequences for car accidents, for injuries at work, for strokes, and even suicide. Um, that happens around this time of year um, as well. In fact, uh, as Dr. Neil would know, doing shift work uh, right now, so the, the limit that's been set off 80 hours per fortnight for, for, for a lot of shift work is actually based on the fact that beyond that, they start to find statistical increases in mental health. So that's where that kind of number comes from. So we know this is a real thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, as I say, a lot of this, um, these, this data is coming as a on the back of research into sleep itself. The other interesting claim that um, Matthew Walker makes in his book is if you hypothesise that if there was a single pill that you could take that would improve your cognitive capacity, your memory, your mood, your anxiety, management of um, stress and depression, um, and um, your overall well-being and your, you know, your, your physical capacity to um, live off that, that would be the best-selling pill on the planet. Sure. And yet that's all possible with well-regulated, consistent sleep. And I do wonder, and obviously saying this to someone who hasn't read his book, but, but a lot of those, those factors, they in and of themselves cause better sleep as well. So, yeah. so you know, perhaps a nice, healthy, vicious cycle to be, to be stuck in. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder how you're actually achieving that. I wish it was as simple as a pill. Are you a good sleeper, Dr. Sharma? No. No, but I tell you what. I, when I'm exercising and eating well, my sleep is extraordinary. Uh, when I'm not, uh, it's it's terrible. Yeah, Doctor Neo, terrible, terrible sleeper. Sleep is one of the things that eludes me and causes me large amounts of stress, and then I don't get any sleep, and then I get even more stressed. So it's a self fulfilling process. <laughs> Your self panel leader? Oh, I'm shocking. <laughs> 
are really, really God, bad. We suck. Really bad. And 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 it's one. It's that cognitive dissonance, isn't it? I know how good it is. As I just said, I've been reading a, a whole bunch about it lately, and um, I still am shit at it. Hey, we've got to wrap it up. Um, a big thanks, Dr. Sharma. Big thanks, uh, Neo. Big thanks to our guest, Fiona Russell. Um, check us out on the podcast. Big thanks to Max, our podcast editor. That podcast will be up about Tuesday. Um, uh, next week, Dr. Nick will be in the team. Oh, and I want to um, shout out a big congratulations to the new show on Triple R on Thursday, 7 to 8, uh, called Spin Cycle, taking a look at um, – it's a new pop-up show make, trying to make sense of uh, the 24-7 news cycle. The first episode was just last Thursday. Go and check it out. Um, get your subscriptions in the last few days. Um, set yourself up for some great prizes. But for now, it's bye for us. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.